to turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 4. 1 Corinthians, chapter 4. This is on, isn't it? We need a little more juice here. Just a brief passage this morning, verses 14 through 21. God's Word says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills. And I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod, or in love, and a spirit of gentleness? Let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. Our grace. We are going to pick up and uh, move forward, I hope, out of, yes, last week's message. We are not going to uh, easily abandon that theme. For Paul's going to keep revisiting it, particularly over the next few chapters, uh, that theme of the necessity of the Christian to live out his Christianity in a manner consistent with his profession. That we profess to follow the one true and living God who has redeemed us, that is, purchased us. And I think we use that word redeemed uh, too loosely without really meditating on its impact, and that is that we have been bought in. That we have been delivered from our sin, and that came at a dear price that was freely, lovingly paid for us, and that we are no longer our own. And it is time that we begin living consistent with that confession. And the idea that these are new themes um, that uh, only churches today have to struggle with because of the condition of our society is simply error. Um, Nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes tells tells us way back when, in Solomon's day, we come into a passage here in Corinthians and we go, wow, um, they were dealt with the same things we're dealing with today. They were dealing with immorality. They were dealing with legalities of, uh, of, of the judicial system. They were dealing with governments that were in opposition to them. They were dealing with religious people who were of greater opposition to them, as we're going to talk about today, to some degree. They were dealing with pride and conceit and division within their churches. Um, And we go, I thought that was the first century and they did it all perfectly. After all, they had the apostles as their pastors. But the fact is, is that it's not different because mankind isn't different. And this we must realize is that we are still dealing with 
redeemed sinners who are still dragging around with them a body of death that seeks to influence them towards sin all the day long. And when we ease up in that warfare, it is certain that we will fail. And that is what it means to fail as a Christian, is to think that somehow we are not at war. War not only with the world's concepts and philosophy, but a war really with our own past of who we once were in contrast to who we are now in Christ. And so the Corinthian church was dealing with all of those same issues. We come into a passage like this and we see the great contrast between them and their preachers. That Paul and Apollos and Peter and Christ himself provided them ample examples of godliness. They taught them not only in the, uh, well, not with the wisdom of men, not with the words of men, but with the wisdom of God. And not only did they teach it with words, but with powers. We're going to discover this morning more extensively. You might think, well, with such preaching and teaching, yes, it would make a big impact on our community. And pastor, why don't you man up and start doing that? But the fact is, is that in that very same town of Corinth, we have this kind of sin going on in the church after this kind of teaching. And so we realize that it is not, the burden is not placed upon the teachers, but those who choose whether to receive it or reject it. And this brings us to where we are at today of recognizing our personal responsibility towards living out our faith and how that is going to occur and under not only what authority, but under what means does God give us to enable us to live that kind of life. Before we get into this too much farther, we need to go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We immediately are confronted with the seriousness of our task before us in the next few minutes. That we are not dealing with uh, an opinion that we can take or leave. We certainly can choose to reject or accept what we hear today, but not lightly and not without consequence. And so we come before you with a humble spirit, recognizing who you are. You are our creator. You have shown your love toward us beyond our imagination. You've waited patiently upon us to be, receive that salvation and now you wait patiently upon those who have done so to live in accordance with their new position before you. But Lord, we also know that there is limits to your patience even, that one day there will be judgment, that there are consequences for our actions and for our responses or the lack thereof. So Lord, we pray that you might have liberty to move and work amongst us. We know that there is much of our culture, almost all of it, that needs to be overrun 
by your Spirit. And Lord, help us today, during these minutes, to actively engage ourselves, knowing that the battle is yours. You've already won the victory. It's time for us to walk in it. The Lord, help us to recognize our place as soldiers of the resurrection. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we start off in verse 14 with where we had essentially left off last week, and that is that this is a warning. And not only this passage, but the whole book stands as a warning to the church. You have been warned. And in that condition, Paul is able to have some kind of, of a release of responsibility for he has communicated to them the truth in the course of writing this entire letter. Um, it doesn't mean that he is now no longer going to do anything for them, but he has released a responsibility for that because they are fully warned. He will write another letter. He will visit them again. He will continue to keep them in prayer, which just adds more and more responsibility upon their shoulders that certainly we have to come to something like this and realize to whom much is given, much is, is required, that God, because of all of the effort and energies that Paul poured into the church at Corinth, that God poured into the church at Corinth, not just through Paul, but men like Apollos and Peter and Christ himself, that they had a lot to be answerable for. And I would contend that we are in a more privileged position than the church at Corinth ever was. They did not have a completed scriptures where we do. They did not have the fullest extent of the teaching of, of Christ and the apostles uh, in the New Testament. They just didn't have it readily available to them. Uh, portions of it were starting to trickle out um, and were starting to impact the community, but by and large, um, they were dependent upon their teachers and upon understanding of the Old Testament. Yeah, that part that we don't read very much. That's what they were dependent upon. And so, from our perspective, we have it better. We have more uh, things available to us in, in terms of the history of teaching and, and of the fullness of Scripture. And so we do not carry less responsibility because you have not been confronted with the likes of Paul or Apollos or Peter, uh, or so you contend, so you might contend, um, but we have because we have the fullness of their writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit himself. We have its application to their churches and we see it readily applicable to ours. And so truly to whom much is given, much is required. And so uh, we, we can try to shame you into righteousness, but that seldom lasts. It is not enduring, and it is not godly. But rather a warning stands that there is a holy, holy, holy God who demands something of you if you um, were able to understand and, and comprehend of what was spoken of in James chapter 2 that you heard this morning, that faith without works is dead. It's like the body without the spirit is dead. Show me your faith by your works. Um, because you, the idea that uh, a statement of faith saves me is very foreign to God's word. It is a life 
of faith that saves us. It is not the sinner's prayer. It is the repentant sinner that comes to God and receives his salvation and turns to God from sin. That describes a life, not a (laughs) certain prayer. And so we come to this passage with a powerful warning, a warning that is repeated again and again throughout Scripture, and that is that we must mix with our works a walk. I'm sorry, with our faith. We must mix with our faith a walk, which James refers to as our works. Not that we are earning salvation, but rather this is the evidence that we have really given our lives to God. So we are warned that you have to answer. There is an accounting. There is a, a, a judgment seat that we face, that we have to confront. Um, there is that audit of your life that is on the horizon of your life. And it is quickly drawing nearer and nearer. And so warnings like this stand very powerfully and ought to get our attention very quickly. He's not the only one that writes like this. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews gave warning after warning after warning after warning uh, not to fall away from Christ. You fall away from Him, there is no other hope. And so he warns them over and over again. And Paul here begins uh, summarizing this warning section with a recognition that I'm not, that there's a shame aspect to this when you contrast how they are compared to how he is and they claim to be spiritual and yet here's the one who is out there doing the work of the gospel and they think they're, they're superior even though they haven't done half of what he is doing. They are now living as he has lived. They have not suffered as he has suffered. And you might say, well, that whole point is to shame them. Um, but it is rather to warn them that such thinking is error and is going to lead to judgment if it is not rectified. And so he warns them as a father warns his children. And that warning sometimes is very harsh. That warning is is necessarily harsh, by the way. Why? Because our children are foolish. Because they're immature. And that's why the harshest penalties happen for the youngest ones. There comes a point where we no longer spank kids. We just let them deal with the consequences of their decisions, which might be much more significant than just they wish they could just get a spank on the butt and get it over with. I wish that's all there was. But now... It seems like the consequences go on and on and on and on and on. And yes, they do. It's not just a few minutes of pain. Now it is about my whole education, my whole um, relationship with my family, the entirety of my life. All my dreams and goals have to be changed now. And that is the result of adult consequences to sin. And so, while the world might look at disciplining a child as being harsh, the reality is is that's really not harsh, but it looks like it's harsh. It is a violent act. But it is a purposeful one to prevent a very long-term, very uh, life-changing harshness 
that may not seem violent, yet it really is because it does violence to who we are and what we should be. And so this harshness of Paul is not done out of anger in terms of human anger, but rather out of the disappointment and godly wrath against those who would perpetrate sin in the name of Christ. And so he comes to them as a father to his children, and he tells them that. That is, in their immature state, he must deal with them in this kind of way, but there's a reason. And that is that if they do not make corrections quickly, there is great penalty. They're already beginning to suffer. When we get to their the description of the Lord's table and we find out that they've been doing that so poorly that God has been striking some of them with illness and death. Um, now you understand why the warning is necessary. There have been a handful of times where I have done what under most circumstances would be considered even an abusive act towards a child of mine because the alternative was for them to get run over by a truck. But nobody would have called that abuse, though a hundred and some pound man, it changes. So Maybe I should say a little less than a 200 pound man grabs and throws a child and even maybe lands on them and no one gets excited. They congratulate him. Why? Because of the alternative, which is certain death. And so we do not curse Paul for this. We thank him for it, even as we ought to be thankful for a parent who does an act of violence to deliver a child from the misery that he doesn't see. From that danger that lurks that they don't recognize. And so Paul wants them to understand his motives. And we saw last week and spent a lot of time on the whole idea of, of therefore his urging to them was um, in your immature status, imitate me. One day, you will mature enough in Christ that you can follow Him. But in this intermediate state, in this immature state, you need to follow me. And again, we can look at our families, we can see children, and we recognize as a parent, I have a responsibility to set an example to them until they make these choices for themselves of what kind of people they want to be, that I need to personify for them what it means to be righteous. And you go into these homes and you see parents engaged in all of this vice in their life and then they are shocked and dismayed to find their children participating in it as early as 8, 10, 9, 10 years old. It's like, well, you've shown them the way. And I remember visiting my uncle many when I was very young. And... Uh, and he wasn't a believer. Um, and I remember it so distinctly. It put such an imprint into my mind. Um, Dad says, son, go get me a beer. And here's this guy my age. I was about seven or eight. And uh, he goes to get Dad a beer. And, and uh, he cracks it open and takes a few sips before he takes it to Dad. What's the problem with that? It's okay with Dad. 
You see, we are giving examples for our children to follow. And in the ministry, it is similarly, in an immature state, it is necessary that you have these examples to follow. Not that they are the optimal example, but they are a stepping stone towards the example, Jesus Christ, that we are called upon to follow. And so Paul says, as I follow Christ, you follow me. And he makes this statement not just to the Corinthian church, but to many of his churches. Imitate me. He's going to repeat this here in Corinthians again. And we're going to come back to it. But we have this statement that to draw you out of immaturity, you're going to need to be handled um, almost violently with that kind of warning. You're going to have to be given an intermediate example to follow. And when you don't follow that, there's evidence that you have no interest in following after God when you won't follow godly examples that are in front of you. And then he sends a peer, and this is phenomenal in verse 17. I'm sending Timothy to you. <laughs> it's not good enough to send you a letter. It's not good enough to warn you. I'm going to send you a representative of my ministry. And here comes young Timothy, and he is young. Um, and, and Paul's going to have some things to say regarding Timothy later on in the book. Uh, we can jump forward and look at that. Where he says, I expect you to treat him well. I expect you to take care of him. I expect you to help him. I expect you to be responsive to him. But here he simply says, listen, there's a reason I sent him to you. And early on in my book now, I want you to understand, um, he is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. Now remember, he just says, you are my children in the Lord. Okay, You're my beloved children. He's the same word, you're my beloved. But there's something different about Timothy than the beloved Corinthians. It's that word faithful. Timothy is my beloved and faithful son. And any parent that has had two children that they love and one chooses to do righteousness and one chooses to do um, sin and wrong um, knows what Paul's referring to. There is a certainness of the love for both of them. Yet there is an understanding that you must recognize and appreciate and build up the, the faithfulness of the righteous one. But all you, your relationship, the entirety of your relationship towards the one in error and sin is warning, warning, discipline, warning, sternness, harshness. We recognize that. That's not an expression of hate. That's not an expression of indifference. That's an expression of love towards them. And here's Timothy, one that I can entrust with this kind of a message. I can entrust him to go and make sure he declares to you the truth because of his faithfulness. What is faithfulness? Well, that's going to be one of the biggest parts of today's message because it's related to what Paul has to say in the rest of the chapter. So we're going to come back to faithfulness in a second because we're going to connect it to something else that Paul communicates here at the conclusion of this rebuke. I want you to look at what he was sent with first, and we're going to come back to the idea that he is faithful, just as Paul's faithful, but the Corinthians were not. He's there to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. I want you to see the consistency of Paul's message. Paul also is a faithful minister of Jesus Christ. It is not that he had to inform them of these ways. 
The fact is they were fully aware of how Paul lived his life. He lived it among them for some time. And he suffered for it and he was willing to uh, do that for their benefit. They knew his manner of living. He was there over that period of time. They got to see it. They got to engage in it. They got to be the beneficiaries of it. And so Paul says, listen, I'm sending Timothy not to tell you what my way of life is because you really already know. He's just there to remind you of it. To remind you how I live my life. And Paul's going to get to that later in the letter too. To remind you, do you, did you forget how I lived among you? And so Timothy becomes this person that in many ways becomes the face of the book of 1 Corinthians. So Timothy brings the book. Here, read this. Now, look at it. I'm here to do Paul's uh, work of trying to bring you out of your immaturity, to slap you around a little bit, to bring you to confront the fact that you are not right with God and it's time that you correct some things in your life. And so Timothy becomes that that person, that face of the book that he is delivering, that he is there to show you and remind you of how I live and what I teach. Just, again, it's not that they didn't know what Paul taught. He taught them for well over three years. It's that they chose to forget. They chose to ignore it. And so they're going to have this personal reminder not only of this book, but of the man, young man, the young minister, Timothy. And of course, there's always some who no matter how you rebuke them, no matter how ardently you do it, no matter how much you yell, no matter how much you jump up and down, no matter how many efforts you use to warn them and to challenge them, to draw them and to love them out of sin and into righteousness, that they will resist. And Paul anticipates it already. Verse 18. Some of you are thinking you can ignore even this letter because Paul's not going to come here. I want you to see the foolishness of such an immature response. What difference does it make? if Paul shows up or not. What is Paul going to do to anybody? He's already communicating. He's going to get to that here in the next chapter, chapter 5, about the idea of judging. Chapter 6 is going to come out a lot. Um, But what is Paul going to do to you? Does he have the authority of Caesar to come in and arrest you and put you in prison? No. No. Can he execute you? No, nor would he. Um, So what are you afraid of if Paul's coming? Well, he'll just incite everybody against me. So then you already recognize there's a problem. You see, the immature don't realize that getting in trouble with the pastor isn't that big a deal. Getting in trouble with your parents' children isn't that big a deal. Even getting in trouble with the law isn't really that big a deal. Because you see, none of them have control over your eternity. They can make you suffer for a little while. They can make your life difficult. They can imprison you. They could even in some states still, in some countries, take your life. Not parents and pastors, but government. 
big deal. You see, the immature just look around them and respond like that. Oh, he's not going to really come, so I can just keep living the way I'm going to live. Really? And uh, whose name do you call yourself by? You call yourself Christian. Little Christ. I'm a child of God. I am redeemed. That means that you belong to God and you're going to answer to Him. And I don't want you to look at the foolishness of their arrogance that think that as long as there's not an apostle in town, they can get away with doing whatever they want. As though God is as blind, as deaf, and as dumb as they think the preacher is. This is the immaturity of the Corinthian church. And I would contend it's the immaturity of many of us. To think that somehow, as long as pastor doesn't find out, as long as the church doesn't find out, as long as I live this in the privacy of my own bedroom, in my own house, in my own wherever, um, that and nobody gets hurt. Oh, I love that. Um, that uh, uh, I can do it with impunity. I can do it without punishment. And you're a fool because what you're demonstrating is that you know nothing about God. And it makes me wonder if you really know who He is since you don't act like He is who He is. But that's the immature. That's the immature in Christ. That's the immature Christian to think that somehow they can walk their way and they've got this fire insurance policy at the end that gets them out of hell. That somehow... Um, God, they're going to arrive in heaven as God is just going to be pleased as punch to see them show up there. But that is not what I have come to understand the judgment of Christ to be about. It is a true judgment and it is a judgment of fire. Am I proposing a purgatory kind of thing? No, 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 no. But there's going to be some pain. There's going to be a lot of tears. And there's a some of you smelling of smoke, it says. What if that lasts for all eternity? That you're kind of smoky whenever you walk by you. Oh, you just barely got here, didn't you? If the if the awards, if the rewards, if the crowns are for all eternity, maybe the the smoky smells for all eternity too. Oh, you're one of those just got here. Empty-handed. Lots of tears. And, in addition to that, you had the misery of living a non-victorious Christian life on earth. And so the foolishness of the arrogance to think that, well, as long as Paul's not around, as long as I don't get caught by the preacher man, um, ha ha, I fooled everybody. But you don't understand who your father is. You don't understand who God is. Which tells me something about your maturity in Christ. But Paul assures them, I'm going to come to you shortly. And he did. Um, The Lord did will it. He did make another visit there. Um, And now we find out what he's after when he gets there. What's Paul going to do when he gets there? 
He's going to apply something of his authority to their lives. And the authority is not, like I said, to invoke a penalty. The authority is to discern the truth. To weed out the braggarts who claim claim to spirituality and to expose them for what they were. He will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power, in other words, the absence thereof. He will weed out those who will brag of spiritual maturity while not having it, and he will be able to discern between them and those who genuinely have the power of God active in their life. And he'll see the difference. And it is that discernment that most Christians are frightened of. Because they realize if this man can see into my life and into my heart and see into the truth that's there and expose that, I'm in deep trouble here among the body of saints. Even in my community, as we're going to see. I mean, it goes far beyond just uh, what happens in the church building. I mean, this stuff was known throughout Corinth, the whole city, because these Christians were participating in things that they had no right to. They, they were doing hideous immorality. They were going to the court system against each other. They were behaving anything like family, well, maybe like dysfunctional family, but they were behaving anything like the family of God. And Paul says, I'm going to show up, and here's what my presence immediately does. By the power of God, I'm able to discern and quickly bring it out who are the arrogant immature in sin and where the power of God lies. Why is he able to draw that out? Because he has been a minister of the power of Jesus Christ. Now, what is this power? Well, I'm going to attach the power of God to that description of Timothy, which is faithful. Now, Paul has already mentioned this in the, uh, in the book of Corinthians. Uh, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 4, we saw... His description of how he came says, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So he says, When I came to you, I didn't come to you with, with trick words. I didn't uh, you know smooth talk you into the kingdom of heaven. I came to you with the Spirit of God and with power. Okay? I want you to go to uh, first. Thessalonians with me very quickly. First Thessalonians. I'm just laying the groundwork here. I'll start preaching in a minute. First Thessalonians chapter one. Oh, that's as I say, that doesn't look right, but that's we find the uh, description again of this uh, correlation. of Paul's ministry with power, verse 5. I'm sorry, did I tell you it's verse 5? Chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians. It says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Sound familiar? Just what he said to the Corinthian church. But also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became, follow this, followers of us and... Of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, 
and you became examples to everyone. The Thessalonican church was of the opposite character, it seems, of the Corinthian church. It has its own problems, but its problems were mundane compared they're theological, essentially. Um, they were afraid they might have missed something, which that's a whole different attitude than the Corinthians who are trying to get away with something. Okay? Do you see the difference? Yeah, I prefer to deal with somebody who's afraid they might have missed something of the goodness of God and of the grace of God than dealing with someone who's trying to get away with something. And so that's the Corinthians. But I want you to notice the similarity of his message to both of those churches. I came to you with the, whole, with the power of the Holy Spirit, not in cunning words, but in, but in the gospel message, plain and simple, Jesus Christ, him crucified, risen again, and is today in the, in, ascended to heaven. And we, and, but it came with power. And in Thessalonica, we find him describing that even further, that that power came through affliction. That it came through assurance. It came through uh, his lifestyle among them. That in that immature status, in the very short time as in Thessalonica, they became followers of Paul. They imitated him on their way to imitating God. Do you see it? You became followers of me and of the Lord. They took the steps necessary to go from immaturity to maturity. And as they did so, they became examples to other churches. They became the examples, as you were became examples to all Macedonia, Acacia, to everyone who believes. And they did exactly what Paul did. And if Paul goes around and preaches the gospel to others, that's what the Thessalonians did. And they spread out all over their region and they shared Christ. They weren't cloistered. They went out there and they shared Christ because that's what Paul did. And we're following Paul. We do what that guy does. And if that guy going out there and walking all over the Roman Empire sharing Christ, that's what we're going to do. If that guy's going to live this way, that's the way I'm going to live. On my way to living for the Lord. If that guy is pleasing to God, I would do pretty good to follow his example on my way to trying to please God. But the difference between the Thessalonian church and the Corinthian church came right down to were you ready to receive the power of God. They both had the power of God demonstrated in their midst. Let's go to Acts and just see how that works. Because these two churches are actually right together. One chapter after the other. There's a little event in Berea and Athens in between them. But uh, his ministry in Thessalonica and his ministry in Corinth were pretty close together. Okay. Um, in fact, if you were to read Acts chapter 17 and 18, your conclusion was is that God had a lot more work to do in Corinth than he had to do in Thessalonica. In fact, you would kind of expect that these two letters would be reversed. That it would be the Thessalonians that needed the Corinthian letter and the Corinthians that needed the Thessalonian letter. But... Such was not the case. Let's pick up chapter 17, verse 1 of Acts. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Three Sabbaths, that means three weeks. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. 
And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Isn't that great? You go, well, there's the power of God. Great multitudes coming to know Christ. Not yet. Keep going. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, which anyone can do anywhere, um, set all the city in uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, this Jesus. They troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, we're going to stop right in the middle of the verse, I know. Oh, this is the end of the actions of the Thessalonians. What is it that brought them to maturity? What was it that is the evidence that there is something more substantial going on in their life? They followed Paul, not only in receiving Christ as their Savior, but willing to suffer for his name's sake to the point that they will stand up and they will say, you don't need Paul. We believe in this Christ. You want to attack someone, you attack me. I'll take your persecution. I'll take it. And that's what Paul refers to in the letter of the Thessalonians. You were the examples. You had the power of God to endure faithfully the opposition of man against true Christianity. That, my brethren, is the power of the resurrection at work in someone's life. Is that when confronted with opposition... They will take a stand. They did not expose Paul. They didn't say, oh, he just headed down the street. They didn't lie. They stood there and took it. And in this situation, um, it didn't get beat up. They just got their money taken away from them. That's what it means, taking security from Jason. So he had to pay a bond, essentially, that they're not going to rabble-rouse. But then they took responsibility for Paul and Silas to get them out of town. But the church in Thessalonica grew. The power of God was evident among them. They were faithful. In the midst of opposition, they were faithful. We go to chapter 18 of Acts and we find the ministering in Corinth and you find almost identical circumstances. We have him going to the synagogue several Sabbaths. Um, verse 4, he reads in the synagogue every Sabbath, persuaded Jews and Greeks. Um, uh, Silas and Timothy are, are, came from Macedonia. And so Paul's compelled by the Spirit, says, and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. They opposed him and blasphemed. And so he said, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He went to right next door <laughs> and um, to the synagogue. And uh, other people are getting saved, including Crispus. The ruler of the synagogue, which is kind of interesting, uh, had, didn't believe until the guy uh, moved next door. Many of the Corinthians hearing believed or baptized. Uh, God gives them a vision, says, don't run off. I've got lots of people here. And you go, well, that's the power of God. Now, the power of God is faithfulness to endure. This is the power of the resurrection. Verse 12, after a year and a half, 
Gallio was proconsul of Acacia. The Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. That's the Bema. Saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to law. When Paul's about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I would bear with you. But as a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat and all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. Notice that they didn't take Crispus, who was one of the other rulers of the synagogue. They took Sosthenes and beat him before the judgment seat, but Gallio took no notice of these things. God divinely protected them. He continues his ministry there a good while, it says. Um, and we look at that and we say, well, what did it cost the Corinthians? Where were the Corinthians? We find Paul alone before the judgment seat. Where were the Corinthians? We immediately see the Thessalonians. I mean, they're active. They're engaged. They're willing to suffer. They'll take the penalty. They'll stand before the judgment seat. They're willing to follow God to the degree that Paul's willing. We get to Corinth and I say, where are the Corinthians? They're not there. The Greeks are there. The Jews are there. But where's the Christians? Why aren't they joining Paul at the judgment seat? I would contend that the faithfulness of a guy like Timothy and the faithfulness of the Thessalonians is evident not by the large conversions, but rather by the endurance of opposition. And the Corinthians had not really endured much opposition. In fact, they weren't even mature enough to endure and to get victory in the opposition within their own flesh, let alone in the world. They're living like the world in the world, even though they claim not to be of the world. You see, they may claim to something, but there was no power in their lives. That is, there was no evidence of faithfulness. Such faithfulness of following after a guy like Paul and living a very different life to on your way to following the example of Christ um, is going to produce in the community around you, in your friends and acquaintances and your family, opposition. It will occur if you are faithfully following after that pattern when that opposition comes, becomes the testing of our faith. And that testing of our faith is not something that we take lightly. It is very important. And James tells us that, you know, count it all joy when that faith is tested. And that's why when we look in the book of Acts, and the apostles, the early apostles are getting beaten and they walk out of there thrilled. Why? Because they got to suffer for Christ. Not because they went around and picked fights but they simply were doing the work of Christ and the work of Christ in this world will always bring opposition if it's done in righteousness, in spirit, and in power. And the joy to endure that comes from a mature understanding that when I do the work of God, it is going to be opposed by those who hate God because they should hate me too. Because the servant is not greater than the master, Christ tells his disciples. So you expect to be treated the way I was treated. And if we're not, if the world loves us, then there's something wrong with you. And the world loved the Corinthians. Who wouldn't? 
They behave just like them. And so the world can point and see there's no difference. Christ doesn't really make a difference. You know, you can call yourself Christian, but you live just like me or maybe even worse. And they were living worse. So the world loves them and they're not going to oppose them. They're going to laugh at them. They'll make jokes about them. They'll point to them. They'll use them as excuses not to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. When they say that, they're talking about you. Okay? They're saying Christians aren't living like they should. And the world knows how you should live. They make the claim. They say it. They puffed up. They make these claims. But there's no power in their lives. And what Paul's threat was, was that when I show up, I will be able to very quickly identify, let's compare the power to power. When Paul shows up, things happen. Why? Because he lives a radical Christian life. And it gets attention quickly. Because it's so weird. We talk about Jesus as our king. We talk about Christ as our master, as our Lord. We follow uh, different marching orders. We are not of this world. We don't live according to its precepts. We don't trust in what the world trusts in. We don't care about its money. We don't care about its politics. We don't care about any of that. Our care is about things eternal, things that endure. And Timothy was such character. He was a faithful son. He had endured. He'd gone through it all with Paul. Thick and thin. He was there. And I want you to notice in Corinthians that Timothy wasn't there at first. He shows up later. And it's when Timothy and Silas show up that Paul gets emboldened. And says, it's time for me to push a few buttons here now that my full entourage has arrived. And he just stands up and makes this bold declaration. Before that, he was working his way, working his way through the Old Testament, trying to say, lay a groundwork of the gospel uh, to the Jews in the synagogue. And then when those two guys show up, he says, he says he's emboldened. And now he's just going to declare, Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. You should be following him. And that gets a few people riled up. Such was the nature of Timothy's ministry in relationship with Paul. He was a faithful man, and together they would endure anything for Christ. Wow. So the power of God and the Spirit of God that were being referred to um, is not evident by these great conversions. It was evident by faithful endurance in righteousness and in truth. And this Paul's going to spell out in the chapters to come. It's no mistaking that in the later chapters here, we're going to be confronted with some of the sources of that power. And it's not something you have to conjure up inside of you. I've got to conjure up this power to endure. Wrong. I've got to conjure up the power to be faithful. I've got to conjure up the power to be uh, righteous. Wrong, wrong, and wrong again. Paul is going to take an entire chapter to explain very carefully the power of Christianity and is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's going to get an entire chapter and it's one of those powerful chapters uh, around is the fullest treatment of the resurrection in, in a logical and a, in a confrontational manner of recognizing that power. It is preceded by a chapter that deals with the Holy Spirit. Do you get the connection? 
that our trust is in the work of the Spirit within us and in the power of the resurrection that enables us to go out there and live a different life. And when we don't live that life, we are making a declaration that that resurrection had nothing to do with me. That it was weak and powerless. But when I go out there and I live, willing to endure whatever ridicule comes my way by my peers in the world, whatever opposition comes from religious people, and that's where most of Paul's came from, was religious people. If I'm willing to take that kind of a stand, the Holy Spirit will enable us and we are taking a stand in the power of the resurrection. Why am I not afraid of death? Why are Christians so unafraid of death? Shoot me, hang me, decapitate me, whatever. I'm going to keep preaching Christ. Why? Because there's a resurrection. Why am I so concerned about living righteously? Because... When it's all said and done, it's not all said and done. I have to answer to somebody because there's a resurrection. I have to answer to a holy, holy, holy God on that side. And I'm going to have to let that impact my life. And when I begin to see the power of the resurrection take root in my life, it brings me, it, it draws me, it, 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 it insists upon me becoming mature. You see, we give lip service to the resurrection. But in our immaturity, we're not living it. You don't really believe you're going to have to answer to God for anything. You don't really believe. Or you would live different. We would live radically different. To know that all it takes is the breath of God to say, this day, you have to give an answer to me. It's all that stands between you and your accountability. is for God to say, today, this day, you're answering to me. That's all it takes. And for the Corinthians, that day was a day of sorrow. Because God said, today you answer to me for the way you have behaved at my communion service. Today you answer to me. When God says that, boom. Suddenly the resurrection, power, that should have been lived on earth, is something that you're going to recognize. I gave lip service to it, but not my life. There were words, but no power. Because I was so focused on the cross, I forgot that there was an empty tomb. And I didn't live it. Paul's warning is very strong. Any man of God who is living the resurrection can immediately, immediately recognize Someone living the words. It's not hard. And the fact of the matter is, the world can recognize the difference. Easily. 
My children reported to me that on their bus ride home, they had religious conversations. you got to stop having those, by the way. You need to have personal conversations about a guy, not about a religion. But the statement that kept being made, I know people who call themselves Christians and they don't live any different than me. They say bad words, they get drunk, they sleep around. So it's probably time for them to call themselves something other than Christian, like Baptists. I don't know. But there's Baptists who do the same things too. What a sorry state. But the world has that accusation against the church. You're no different. That's because the church has lost track of its power to endure. And that power, that radical power of faithful following after God is built into a right understanding of the resurrection. That there is a day when all this comes to an end And then you will see God face to face. And all your bragging to cover all your arrogance and your sin will have no place. And I fear that for most of us, we'll stand naked in His presence because we have nothing to clothe ourselves in. Bowels will be clothed in righteousness. I know it's the righteousness of Christ. But in terms of what James talks about, that works, those works that represent and, and demonstrate and, and point to our faith, that they're absent, yeah, I have great fear that for some of you, that judgment seat will not be the judgment seat of Christ, but the great white throne. Where Christ will say, I don't know who you are. Because that's the ultimate warning that Hebrews gives us. Is that, listen, if you're engaged in this warning and you're not heeding this warning to humble yourself and to acknowledge and repent of this sin, then the next stage is that, well, maybe there is no reality of Christ in you. That you are only giving lip service even in your statement of faith. But these were puffed up. These were true believers and Paul was concerned for them because there would be there's no power and it's evident. And if you're worried about Paul coming with a rod or with gentleness, um, if you understand the resurrection, you realize that Paul isn't really the problem. But the problem is, is that do you want God to come with a rod or with gentleness when he comes? Paul just becomes a representation of Jesus Christ. And he will come. How do you want to receive him? Do you want him to have to come into your life with a rod of correction or with a spirit of gentleness? Come. We have even a young man in a perverse society who stood and was faithful, who was entrusted to remind a church of their example, to remind a church of what they've been taught, 
and to prepare the way for the apostle as a representation of Christ to expose arrogance as opposed to the power of enduring faith in a resurrected Lord. I do not expect you to simply will yourself into righteousness or into godly living. I don't expect you to will yourself, nor can I entice you into repentance. But as believers here in the resurrection, I would challenge you. Do you really believe it? And I'll warn you, there is a resurrection. That when all is said and done, Almost nothing's been said or done. For then Christ begins. And if you genuinely believe that there's a resurrection, that you will have to answer before the one true and living God who is holy, 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 then brethren, what kind of lives ought you to live? Oh, that we would be like the Thessalonians who said, we will stand, we will follow Paul on our way to following the Lord. We will endure persecution with every assurance of our faith, not because it's comfortable, but because there's a resurrection, so death doesn't mean anything to me. Because there's a resurrection, how I live my life means everything. Because I have to answer for it. Not to you. Not to pastor. Not to the world. I have to answer to my God. For every word. For every moment. For every resource put at my disposal, I will give an answer. And mature people recognize the way to give an answer in the future is to be faithful in the present. Children don't understand that. They think today. Immature people don't think about the future. But if you want to move on to maturity, the resurrection is the power to do so. To realize, if I have to give an answer tomorrow, the day to get ready for that is today. If I know an audit is coming at the end of the year, the time to get prepared for that isn't the day before it. It is throughout the year. Brethren, there is an audit coming. There is a resurrection. There is nothing to fear from this world, so live your faith radically. Put it out there for Christ. You don't have to brag about it. You just have to do it. And I found the people who are actually doing it aren't saying much. But they're suffering much. Because they know there's a resurrection, they're doing it with joy. And faithfully doing it as Timothy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us, for your truth before us. We pray that you might bring it into our hearts and lives. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.